Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host, who makes me glad he is part of my world, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I am great, Andy. It's so great to be back. Yes, this is our season opener. Season three, (laughs) and in season three, the rules are different. Folks. (laughs) <laughs> we have heard that you feel like we are constrained because we have limited ourselves to the 20th century. And Andy and I had a long talk and we've decided <laughs> we will now do movies up until the year 2001. I know. I know. It's a whole it's new huge. world. <laughs> we, we've, we've, we've busted the, the rules down wide open. Oh, yeah, 2002 is still Ooh. too current. I still no, feel that current. way. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but two thousand one, we, we, we felt like we needed that twenty one year buffer. Like twenty was too little. Twenty one, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Works out. That, so what movie are we right. doing today, Larry? We are doing The Little Mermaid from 1989, which Ooh. is, as far as I can tell, almost everybody loves this movie. I mean, if you don't love this movie, hmm. <laughs> There are I things hear, about it that no, are problematic. If, yeah, but if you don't like like The Little Mermaid and you like Disney movies, I truly write to us because I want to know why. I will tell you, you know, there was a period of time, there's like a dark age of Disney animation where Disney yes. animated movies came out and they were not particularly excited. Uh, right. Oliver and Company, uh, The mm-hmm. Great Mouse Detective, which Andy and I love. The Black yes, Cauldron, in which we are a split decision. But yes. no one no one is ever really excited about those movies. Everyone got excited about The Little Mermaid. People were like, Disney is back. Oliver and Company did very well at the box office, but uh, The Little Mermaid really is, uh, I think, that the movie that sparks that renaissance of Disney animation. And I would add also that Who Framed Roger Rabbit uh, yes. would be part of that as well. So although that's you kind of yes, it is, but Touchstone is also that uh, you know the the adult oriented version of Disney. So right. it's interesting to see how all that works together. But let's get into some key facts to set the stage for us here. Um, in the 1930s, after the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Walt Disney had an idea for including The Little Mermaid in a package film that would showcase a number of stories from Hans Christian Andersen, who was the Danish fairy tale writer whose story, of course, The Little Mermaid, provides the material for this film adaptation. That idea got scrapped from the drafting table for who knows why. But lucky for us, uh, during their work on The Great Mouse Detective, writers Ron Clements and John Musker pitched The Little Mermaid to then-Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg, who balked at first because of the story's similarity to the 1984 grown-up live-action hit Splash, which was from Touchstone Pictures. Uh, And the company was involved in a sequel to Splash, because it was a huge hit. But eventually, Katzenberg greenlit the project, and of course, the rest is history. I have a theory, Andy, as to why we didn't get The Little Mermaid while Walt was alive. Yes. And this is... I have no facts. This is just Good. theory. Oh, I want to hear it. Yeah. But my theory is Walt has this tendency, and you and I have seen it, to be very faithful to the original. Mm-hmm. And the Little Mermaid original story by Hans Christian Andersen ends with the Little Mermaid 
being rejected by the prince and turning to stone. Um, it's it oh has a very tragic <laughs> ending, and I I honestly think it would have gone against Walt's sensibilities to change the ending there. Mm, mm. It doesn't have a happy ever after. It it has it it's it's dark. Um, yeah, maybe I can yeah. get to that in a little bit. Sure, sure. So in terms of we're talking about the golden age of Disney animation. Um, in terms of financing. Uh, the the income from Touchstone, as we, we talked about, um, provides Disney this financial stability that they really haven't had for a while. The company hasn't had for a while to produce uh, some some full length animated features. And the 1970s sees five of these features, but the 1980s sees six of them with multiple others in development for the early 1990s. Um, and as such, The Little Mermaid enjoys something that the the 70s pictures did not have, which was a full three-year production process, much like the movies from the golden age of Disney animation, right? And again, Oliver and Company has the same, Roger Rabbit has the same, but The Little Mermaid seems to be the Disney princess movie that everyone has been clamoring for, and that really has been Disney's bread and butter for for, for decades to this point. It's back to the uh, basics. It's back That's to the exactly basics. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so what what makes the Little Mermaid? I think is the music. Um, Howard Ashman and, and Alan Menken, who actually gave the world the horror uh, comedy rock musical Little Shop of Horrors, uh, they were brought in to create this catchy, beautiful music. And the two songs from this film were uh, nominated for Academy Awards: "Kiss the Girl" and "Under the Sea." And of course, "Under the Sea" takes home the Oscar statue. Um, there's an additional Oscar for best original s- score. And this is the first time in 13 years, Disney has won an Oscar for animated work. Um, Under the Sea also won a Grammy and the movie soundtrack has been certified platinum six times. Um, when I was a kid, I used to watch Siskel and Ebert pretty religiously on Saturday afternoons. And, uh, the project brings really rave reviews from from the two those two Chicago Tribune movie critics, um, they claimed this movie was proof that the animated feature was alive and well. Uh, Gene Siskel raved about the time and energy taken to animate all the underwater scenes. He talks about all those bubbles, and you think about all of those bubbles being hand drawn. This is not a computer animated film. Um, the story is tightly told. The music is superior. Uh, like the great Disney movies of the past. And it is, like uh, Ebert says, a return to the great Disney tradition. I, I mean, I remember feeling that way as a kid. Yeah. That this was... Yeah. The, and you know what else is... is It's worth saying, I think you imply it, but it's worth saying outright, Disney is starting to innovate again, right? When you're talking about, like, the all the work they do to make under the sea to make the water to make a realistic water effect in animation right. i mean they they are taking risks and the risks pay off because it makes movies we want to see and it emboldens them to take even more risks in beauty and the beast and aladdin right. every time every time disney takes risks like that uh it it just makes us hungrier and hungrier to see but what will they do next how will they top it Right. And I think I think this movie, if you watch it today, you know, there's a tendency to compare it with, say, Finding Nemo. And I think, <clears throat> of course, Nemo doesn't come out 
until the 2000s. But I think when this movie comes out and we see animation underwater, it is a wow factor that is not to be uh, missed here. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Uh, we we've gotten better. We've gotten better since then, but we would never have gotten there without this movie. Um, compare right. compare the wa- underwater stuff here to the underwater stuff in Pinocchio. It is night and day. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah. Not yeah. And not to dismiss Pinocchio because Pinocchio was amazing for its time. One hundred percent. Yes. Yes. All right, Andy. I'm I'm chomping at the bit to get started here. So let's get let's this go. movie started. Uh, this movie begins not under the sea. And I'm always surprised. This, I think, is something I relearn every time I watch The Little Mermaid. We actually begin above the sea. So when I ask us about the Manish Tana, and if you've listened to the previous two seasons, the Manish Tana is the opening prayer of, pa- not the opening prayer of Passover, but one of the big prayers of Passover. Why is this night different from all other nights? We apply that to a movie and say, why does the movie begin in the exact spot that it begins? Mm-hmm. And I want to say, Andy, why in this movie about the Little Mermaid do we begin above the sea on a ship full of sailors and Eric and his dog? Why do we start there? Well, it's almost like we go big to small, right? So above the, it, it feels that way to me. And, and, you know, like a lot of the Disney movies that we've watched, Larry, I, this movie begins with a prologue, right? We make Prince Eric, and I almost get this whale of a tail vibes from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Oh, he'd be great here, yes. Yeah, yeah. And Eric learns about the existence of King Triton and the Mer people. Or are they? Are they just tales from superstitious crew members, right? And the sailors, uh, when they tell it, they don't seem like they believe it. They're like, nah, they're like... They- they're even just talking a, nonsense. Yeah, even though there's a mermaid carved into the front of their ship, right? I mean, it feels like superstition and lore. It feels like something, and it feels like they're kind of dragging Eric along, and Eric is is interested in this, like, what is this all about? But I don't think the movie really begins there. No. I think the... Yeah, go ahead. But I do have one other thing. I agree with you. Sure. This is better than the storybook openings that uh, we've gotten in some of these other movies where we're reading. Right. right. Someone telling us a story is better than us reading a story. Um, but I'll throw out there is one other important thing we get from being on top of the ship before we go down, which is if we started under the sea, we have no idea what time period this movie is set in. Mm-hmm. Because if there's an Atlantica right now, it could very well be that when um, Ariel goes up onto the surface. She walks into Manhattan and there's like, right. you know, she gets on the subway. <laughs> by setting by setting up that ship and those sailors and Eric and we see the clothes, it's a very smart bit by showing us just a little glimpse of the surface world. We're suddenly grounded in, we're still in that sort of, you know, it's post it's post renaissance uh, but certainly not modern day. Let's not spit, stick a specific time period, but we get the general sense of when this movie is taking place. If mm-hmm. it was entirely under the sea, we would have no idea. And so I think that's a little bit of cleverness. Um, it's 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 world building, but it's so subtle. Yeah, and, and you're right in that it's different from the other Disney princess films that we're used to in that there's no jeweled book that opens, there's no narrator that tells us what is and has happened, delivering the exposition. 
Um, but interestingly enough, the language in the film is modern day. It yes. looks antiquated, but the fairy tale language from a land far away, that's not there. Um, and so I think that's really, that was really kind of interesting to me. Like, it's like, and it's almost a nod to what's happening within the Disney company, which is we're going to do this again, but it's not, it's going to be fresh and different and you're going to like it more. You're, you know it's going to be for us for right now. You know what's actually funny? I've always assumed that the Atlanticans don't speak English. And what we're getting is a translation. And if you're translating Atlantican to the audience, there's no reason to not to use a medieval dialect. You're translating it anyway, so why not translate it to a modern dialect? The problem with my interpretation of this, Andy, uh -huh. is in fact then Ursula doesn't need to ste steal Ariel's voice because Ariel can't speak the same language as Eric. Um, and so, whoops, there goes that. The uh, Anyway, anyway. Anyway. Uh, should we get into plot? <laughs> let's, uh, let's do it. Well, before we do that, let's talk about where the movie really begins, right? Okay. Because I don't think it really begins with that prologue. I think it really, we meet King Triton, you know, um, He's a real guy, and he lights a chandelier, right? And everybody oozes and ahs with his magic. Um, what is that thing called? It's a trident. A a, oh, a trident. I was thinking of magic dingle hopper. <laughs> no, no, no. Dingle hoppers are for your hair, Andy. Oh, tridents, yes, I, sorry. Tridents are I, for, for lighting using magic. Right, right, right. I, I lost the word for a minute. Um, so, and we meet Sebastian, the conductor, and there's this immediate conflict with Ariel and we meet Triton's other daughters and she fails to show up for the performance. And this feels like it's not just not just a performance. She's also never shown up for rehearsal, which means, by the way, Sebastian, <laughs> like like how dare you have your other performers go on stage when your star <laughs> has never come to rehearsal. That is that is not taking care of your cast. But I mean, he's a but, crustacean conductor. Come on. <laughs> okay, fair enough. He does. He does a lot. All things considered. Yes, uh, true. But beyond beyond that, uh, I've actually lost the thread of what I was going to say. Um, but but we get we get the build here. All of these sisters come out. They're each introduced to us. We get their names. I don't catch any of their names. Uh, you know, it's it's not important. But they're there. She comes out, but she doesn't come out. It opens up, and it is a. It feels like this is supposed to be her coming out party, her, her, that's what I was going to say earlier, her bat mitzvah, yeah. if you will. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And when she, she doesn't come to an event, that's about her. And it is a scandal. Everyone in the, sure. you've seen everyone in the kingdom has come here. Uh, that, that is our ex, that, I mean, that is all exposition. It tells us a lot about her. But I'll also say, Andy, it doesn't tell us anything good about her. No, it doesn't. Um, but we meet, you know, we meet, then we meet Ariel. We meet her sidekick, Flounder, to find out, okay, what was more pressing than a show where she's the star? And and she doesn't want to be the star. She doesn't want to act like the other mermaids. And what's genius about this is that the conflict is immediately apparent. Ariel is not content with just staying in her prescribed lane. And I think we start here because it really shows the merfolk at their best. And even at their most grand, Ariel's dissatisfied and wants something more. Even on a day so, which is all about her. Yes. And so immediately the conflict becomes, 
how do you keep Ariel, you know, this popped to mind, but like, how are you going to keep her down on the farm after she's seen Paris, right? She's seen, she's gone to the surface. She's seen something different. And of course it can't be done and probably shouldn't be done. Right. But we're still, I mean, this is still all exposition. So we get this bit where we see Ariel and Flounder and they're going through a shipwreck, which by the way, Ariel, that shipwreck will still be there tomorrow. It'll be there forever. (laughs) Go to your party. Go to your party. This is not urgent. But I put that aside. I put that aside. Well, but I don't Uh, think she really, I don't think she wants to be there. And again, it's this, it's just another, it's another thing, right? She hasn't made a conscious decision to avoid the party. She's She's maybe unconsciously uh, caused herself to forget about it. Yeah, Uh, she's distracted. I would say that that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll also say we learned something else about Ariel, which is that she's reckless because this is not a safe outing. They get no. to this shipwreck and she and Flounder um, are immediate, not immediately, but she jokes about like there being a shark. But there is, in fact, a shark. And mm-hmm. this shark wants to eat her and Flounder. Right. They, we have a, we have a whole thing. She outs. She, we also get to see that she's resourceful. We get to see what a good swimmer she is. We get to see uh-huh. her and Ariel get away that she can handle herself in this situation. But the risks of this situation by far outweigh the potential rewards. And it also is a brilliant um, writing device to have this kind of conflict and resolution happened so early in this movie where someone she loves is in danger and she sort of led them there and she got them out of it, but and not it's going to happen again and it's going to happen bigger again. scale. Yes. And so we know that this, and it, it almost gives us some comfort that she knows how to take care of things, even if it's not maybe, even if it's going to look a little tricky later but, on. But you but know? this is the thing. You, you and I are both parents, and we both know, like, Ariel has gotten herself into a reckless situation. She's oh, yeah. handled it, and it gives her, I think, a false sense of pride that she can handle anything. Right. Right? And so, she, so you know, a lot of people are going to ha- we're going to come up to a point where Ariel signs a contract, and that's the part where people are like, who would sign that contract? Right. It is clear from the beginning that is ariel's flaw is Mm -hmm. that whatever risks are are demonstrated to her she does not believe them to be real and if there is a problem she believes she can handle it without assistance right and that is established in this early scene she is very clearly the princess who will sign that contract later on it's it Mm is it is inherent to her character but I love how, the, like, again, all of that's established so fast. Um, it's yeah. really um, it's such a great movie. It's just so it good. is. So, so Andy, we, what yes. we're looking for here is what the inciting incident is. And this whole mm-hmm. bit with the shark certainly isn't it. And the ball isn't it. What would you say? And I think there, I think people looking at this movie might point to two things as the inciting incident. And when we say, what is the inciting incident? Usually we say, this is the moment that changes the protagonist's life forever, that propels them to take actions and moves the story forward, 
Without the inciting incident, Ariel continues to live in her father's palace, occasionally disobeying, um, but uh, but but not always. You know, like you know, like like she would just. There's a reason that today is the day. What is right. what is the thing, Andy, uh, that you would say is the inciting incident? Well, Larry, I'm gonna have to say that it feels like Ariel saving Eric is that inciting incident for me. She's now got kind of a Florence Nightingale syndrome and she's immediately into him. Um, she's gone to the surface before. She's aware of humans. I mean, but this time she's actually interfaced with a human. And I think I think that's the difference here. And I don't think there's a going back from that. And Andy, I think 99% of people would agree with you and you're correct on this. But I was struck by, I think that there is a subtler inciting incident, which maybe speaks to a larger problem with this movie. I still love this movie, but we'll mm -hmm. get to it when we get to protagonist problems. What actually, in my mind, sends Ariel forward is not that she rescues Eric. It's the fight she has with her father. When her father goes into her chambers with look at this stuff, isn't all of the stuff that she's collected, this collection she's built, and he takes his trident and he destroys it. Ariel isn't trying to escape the kingdom. She has a crush on a human. We have no indicate, like, the statue is enough for her right now. It's a girlish fantasy. It's not real. But when her father comes in and destroys her fantasy... When she, when he, you know, for whatever reasons, we can talk about whether he's he's justified in doing this. That is the moment where something inside Ariel changes and she no longer wants to live in his world. It's mm -hmm. what's going to propel her to to go see the sea witch uh, and, to, and to make this bargain because it's not just she wants this other thing. Uh, she needs to reject her father. Her father has put his foot down mm -hmm. and he pushes, he doesn't intend to, he drives her away at a moment in which I think maybe this would have blown over. Like, I, mm. you know, it's, it's, she doesn't really know Eric. She just thinks he's pretty. She's dancing with the statue, but she has no plans of ever really seeing him again. It's it's this idea of I need to actively leave. And when she goes to the sea, which suddenly like, hey, there's a way to actually get this thing that I want. Ah, uh, there you go. I'm not I'm not saying that your answer is wrong. I think your answer is right. But that but the protagonist problem in this movie, uh, which we'll get to later, is why I point to the inciting incident as being this fight between Tri Triton and Ariel. Mm -hmm. uh, regardless, let's move forward. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so, so the thing that was struck me about rising action, because I know you're going to talk about that next and I can't wait. Go for this it. This movie is a three act structure by the clock and bookends, right? Yes. The, each of the acts, I mean, it's so well written. Um, each of the acts has a moment where you think there's a resolution, but wait, there's not really a resolution. Something, something evil is lurking behind the, you know. To something evil is lurking to propel and, and, and give an engine to the next act. Um, it's so great. And the exact midpoint of the movie is where Ariel's transformed into a human, getting what she always wanted. What she thinks she always wanted, right? Right, yes. right, right, right. 
uh, but at the cost of something else, which is also classic, classic, uh, she gives something up to get something, which is mm-hmm. uh, classic movie writing. Right. Um, there's something interesting about the rising action here. I want to I hit the beats before we get to the climax. She goes to the surface. She meets, she meets Eric. Uh, they definitely have chemistry. Eric doesn't realize, Eric has his own fantasy girl who is connected to her voice and not to Ariel herself, maybe doesn't recognize that he's actually falling in love with, as uh, Grimsby says, the real-life flesh-and-blood girl in front of him. Um, and that that makes up most of the rising action. This movie has a story problem, and when I say story problem, I don't mean like they didn't solve it. They solve the story problem. There's an issue here, which is that um, usually in a movie, we talked about this with in our Fan favorite episode, Xenon, uh, Girl of the 21st Century. Uh, but we'll talk about why this movie does it well. Usually in a movie, we start in the normal world, and then we move to a strange new world. That's classic Wizard of Oz. We start in Kansas, we go to Oz. Mm-hmm. Little Mermaid has the opposite problem. Her, her world is not a world we know particularly well. It's the world of under the sea, and it is exciting for us But to our protagonist, it is normal. And then she goes to On Land, which is not exciting for her audience, but is exciting for her. Mm -hmm. And so that part of the movie can, like, as you're creating the movie, you have to worry about that part of that movie. Will that part of the movie drag? And I will say... The, the writing of this movie overcomes this problem by doing a couple of things. Uh, and one of the things is Ariel comes to uh, the surface with a clear mission, a ticking clock, and consequences if she fails in that mission. Right on. And um, I I don't want to talk about Zenon, uh, but I, I just want to say when... I, give me two seconds. We, we can cut this if we need to, Andy. Xenon uh, comes to Earth, and there is no, as far as she knows, ticking clock. She has nothing she wants there. She just doesn't like it, uh, and she wants to go home. And that, that you know, she's got no clear through line. Ariel has such clear things she needs to do, such clear obstacles she needs to overcome, that it makes it makes the time on surface pass at a relatively quick clip, whereas it, you could see this dragging. They hit all oh, the beats sure. they, they hit all the beats they need to hit, right? All of the things we need to see. She thinks the fork is a dingle hopper and she and she twists her hair. She wakes she she has trouble walking. They do it all they do it fast, they do it charming, and they are always keeping our eye on the clock. Sebastian and Flounder always remind us how much time we have left right. for Ariel to kiss to kiss Prince Eric and true love gets true love's kiss and get a happy ending. Mm-hmm. The the thing I notice about uh, this, gosh, I have a million thoughts right now. Sorry. Um, no, no, it's okay. Like the thing that I notice about this is that there's a a dramatic question. So. The thing, the difference between Xenon and and the Little Mermaid, um, is the lack of dramatic question. And this Little Mermaid is: is this going to work? Can she pull it off? 
Do we know? And oh, by the way, the clock's ticking and there's a time limit on this. And like you said, with Xenon, gosh, who even... Yeah, okay, she much wants as, to go as home as and I, why? As much as I, I hated mean, that movie, it's a great reference point uh, for comparing it, it to it, this one. It is because, you know, you have a strong female protagonist and you're trying to figure out, okay, why do they want something? And just because they want to go home, like, no, their life are, they're, the stakes aren't high enough. So there's no dramatic question. There's no real stakes. And so, yeah. The other thing that really helps us here is that um, Ariel is delighted to be here. Whereas, yes. whereas you know, in Xenon, Xenon hated almost every second of being on Earth. The second she got there, she wants to right. go home. Ariel is having fun, even though there is this ticking clock coming and she's got to make her move on her man uh, pretty, mm -hmm. pretty fast. She's just legitimately enjoying being there. And we can get some reflected delight from seeing her being delighted. Absolutely. Yeah. The other challenging thing about the rising action that the movie also surmounts and does well is they rob the protagonist of her ability to speak. Yes. Um, oh. That is that is very difficult. That is because, an obstacle, right? Right. And we've talked about this in other movies, in, in Dumbo and in Bambi, a little bit how tricky it is. And yet here is a case in which the animators are telling us, the storytellers are telling us, we can trust in the body language of our character to tell the story. What Ursula says in her song is, you'll have your looks, your pretty face, and don't underestimate the power of body language. I mm -hmm. feel like that's someone telling like a studio executive, it doesn't <laughs> matter that she can't talk for the middle of the movie. Right, right. Right? That's funny. And, and Ursula's, I mean, Ursula doesn't know she's right, but she's right. That isn't important. This is this is, you know, it would be bad if it was the radio version of this of this story. But right. in, in a visual <laughs> medium, we don't need it. That's right. What do okay, we, what so do we got to get to the climax. Yeah, the climax. What Andy is the climax of this movie, or is there just multiple climaxes, or is there one very long sustained climax? And since this is the first episode. Uh, of our season, I'll just remind our audience, when we're talking about climax, generally we're talking about the big ticket event of the movie, which is the entire movie we've been waiting for, in some movies, the forces of good and evil to contend with one another, uh, a certain truth to be revealed. We, we want to feel that the most tension is in this moment. This is the place where things are going to go wrong, the story is going to end terribly right and i think i think there's a number of different answers we can get to when we're trying to identify the climax here well i think that whole sequence that starts with well really the whole third act right that starts with the real wedding right right and the sun going down that provide that ticking back clock backdrop i mean it's a slow kind of escalation but it's all there um the stakes are high and of course, there's a moment where it's just too late, despite everyone's best efforts, right? Um, Eric, I think killing Ursula feels like a climax to me. But I also think that Triton turning Ariel into a human 
is the emotional climax of this movie. And that, so, so there's a whole bunch to unpack here. So if you're a kid watching this movie, Andy, I think, I think you're right. That the, the, the battle here is the battle between Ursula and I would like to say Ariel. Um, I would like to. I, I can't honestly say it's it. Ariel actually fights the battle here, but there is a bit where Ariel's trying to stop the stop the wedding, um, and so that does actually feel like, hey, we're heading towards uh, our our protagonist is going to confront our antagonist. But then the plot blows up and gets bigger. Uh, Ariel doesn't stop Ursula in time. Uh, Ursula grabs Ariel and her prize. And then Ariel needs to be rescued twice. First from her contract by her father, and then from the mortal danger that Ursula is causing by creating this giant sea storm. And and as you said, Eric is the one who, who really defeats Ursula, not mm-hmm. so much Ariel there. So, so while it feels like a, a big climax, and it's a big important part of this movie, the smaller, mo- the real conflict in this movie is not about Ariel and Ursula. It has always been about Ariel and her father. Mm-hmm. And so when you're saying like when her fa- when when she and her father uh, say goodbye for the last time and Tri- Triton turns her into a human to let her go be with Eric, that that feels like the emotional climax of the movie for you. I think it is. I think it is. But there's there's a problem. Well. I want to I want to unpack this more when we get to protagonist problems. Put a pin in it, Larry. We'll get to. We'll it. get there, and then and then after these climaxes, we get to the falling action, and the falling action is very very brief. Um, Ariel's getting married, um, but they're on the ship, and so she's still not completely connected from the ocean. Uh, the mermaids have kind of come, and they've come to the surface. Uh, we get one final little fight between Sebastian and Chef Louis, and uh, you know a happily ever after kind of thing, right? And we we fade out. I think the falling action happens relatively quickly, right? I think I think the movie is consistent uh, with other Disney princess movies because the the end game for Ariel is being with her man, right? Yep. Um. Before this climax, she's the one doing the chasing. She's the one doing the rescuing instead of him rescuing her. But when he kills Ursula and sort of, well, and then sets Triton free, right? Um, And then Triton turns her into a human without really talking to her about it first. Like, do you want to be a human or do you want to... He just sort of assumes that's what she wants. I mean, that's where... Yeah. That's where I kind of go, ah, so close. It, it fe- Right, because what we want to see, ideally, is that Triton recognizes Ariel as a completely independent woman who is capable of taking care of herself and recognizes her in- as an independent adult. Right. And instead, it becomes sort of this, I'm passing on the role of being Ariel's caretaker to right. her husband. Uh, yeah, I know she'll be he's, safe. He's because worthy of it because he got rid of Ursula and therefore he wins Ariel as a prize. It's still this idea and, and, of and a Andy, woman as a prize, right? Neither of us find this satisfactory. But no. 
in the movie's defense, and and I don't I don't mean to defend the the notion of it. This is better than what we got in Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, oh, and Cinderella. Oh, oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, maybe that's a low bar. Maybe yeah. that's a low bar. I would still say at this point of the movies that we've done, Alice from Alice in Wonderland is our best female protagonist in terms of independence, taking action, making choices. Okay. That being said, Ariel might be a close second at this point, although she's about to be dethroned in Beauty and the Beast because I like <laughs> Belle better. <laughs> All right. So um, let's talk about characters. Let's talk about Ariel. Uh, yeah. Voiced I mean, we're Jody there Benson. anyway. Yeah. You know, we've, and, and you mentioned this, but we, we've talked a lot about the passivity of those early Disney princess characters. Um, and this time we are getting a female protagonist who acts on our world. I mean, the song, Part of Your World, you know, when we're writing a protagonist, we always want to know, you know, what does the character want, right? And in this movie, there is literally no ambiguity. Part of Your World is a series of I want statements. And we hear the longing and the desire in her to know and to experience the world just beyond the ocean. When she sees the birthday party aboard Eric's ship, she is all in. She actively makes these rebellious choices in her own interests. Sometimes they don't, I don't think she calculates the risks very well. And I think that's her flaw. Like when she makes a, you know, a deal with the sea witch and jeopardizes her life and the life of her father. Right. But you can totally see that she is active. This is not a, I don't think she's a passive protagonist. No, I, I would completely agree with you on this. Which and is, I, as you said, a welcome shift, right? It's so welcome. And we're going to get, you know, little hints of Disney moving in this direction uh, along the way. Uh, but this is a great, this is a great step forward. I think you're also right. Um, you know, there have been princesses before who wanted a man. Ariel actually wants more than a man. She wants the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and... She wants her freedom. And I don't necessarily know that Ariel articulates it in that way. I think she's made Eric symbolic of having her freedom, her freedom from her father. Uh, look, you know, you if we want to frame this as Ariel fighting the patriarchy, I'm all for it. Right, right. I'm, I'm all for a movie about that. But but she, she wants to be able to go where she can go to dance, to sing, to mm-hmm. explore the world, to see things her own eyes. And she is On constantly chafing against the restrictions that her father has set for her. And and that's a real thing. That is yeah. a real teen daughter, father problem. Yeah, I mean, there's this great book by um, Maureen Murdoch, which came out. It actually came out in 1990. So... It's in the zeitgeist of this era, right? Called uh, It's called The Heroine's Journey. And it's a feminist kind of answer to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And I think Ariel fits that journey. She separates from all she's ever known, especially her father's idea of femininity. Um, she wants to identify with Eric, who, who has one foot in the sea and one foot on land, right? Um, she puts Eric the patriarch. The- yeah, er- she puts Eric- the patriarchy on notice. Go ahead. But, but that's such a great point, Andy. It, I'm sorry, it let off of fireworks with me. Eric has complete autonomy over his life. 
There yeah. are parental figures in his life who are not his parents who give him advice. Right. But which he is ultimately allowed to disregard whenever he feels like it. Oh, Grinsby yeah. did not want to be on this ship. Um, but Eric's the one who's in charge. And so, That's yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah, of course, Ariel's going to be attract attracted to that. Eric is free. In and he's a way balanced, in which she right? Is like he not. spends time in the water on the ship and he spends time in his castle uh, with his, you know, subjects and horses and whatever. And and so she sees that and thinks, oh, my gosh, that's what I want. Right. And so she also encounters a series of trials where she doesn't really bargain for the evil she truly encounters. And and while she wishes, I think, to be truly independent, um, she also finds her friends are really necessary for her success. So she can't, she has to reach a sort of interdependence. And she also has to heal the rift with her father, especially when he shows just what he's willing to do um, to sacrifice for her. And so I think this is, this is in movie making in 1989, after the, some of the disastrous films that we've had in the 1980s, um, <laughs> Uh, where women are just basically window dressing. I think this is a really important movie. Agreed. I I I com I completely agree. Um, for for us in our modern in our modern time, this feels a like a if it came out now, it would feel like a step backward. But then right. it was a step. It was a step forward. Oh, I think a huge I think that's, step forward. Sure. Yes. Sure. So Prince Eric, Andy. Ah. Uh, <sighs> <laughs> oh, you find Prince Eric dreamy. He's I my favorite. Tell. He's my favorite prince. But <laughs> but Prince Eric is definitely better than the princes who have come before him. Um, mm -hmm. He's a person rather than a title, uh, right? Like that. That for me is important. Yeah. Even Prince Philip, uh, who I think in Sleeping Beauty is the best so so far of the princes. Eric is a step up in that he's a real person who isn't exactly sure of what he wants, um, has his own like fantasies and realities that he needs to contend with, is also in the process of becoming. And I think there's a sort of a parallel between what Eric's experiencing and what, what Ar Ariel's experiencing. Ariel you know, has a fantasy about the, the real world, which is turning to be true, maybe not in the way that she expects it to be. Eric has a fantasy about what love is. Mm -hmm. um, and he has to choose between the fantasy of love and the reality of love. And yeah, he's very loving, right? He's He cares about Max, his dog, and he's willing to do the right thing to save every soul. There are people who would have let Max die on the ship. And Eric is not willing to, to make that choice. Um, he seems like he's comfortable in his skin. Yes. Um, you know, he's willing to let Ariel take the reins when they're driving. Um, he leans back and lets her, he leans back and puts his hands behind his, his you know, his, uh, rests his head in his hands and just kind of lets her, lets her drive. Um, he has reservations about who she is. He's also very principled. In, in that he want he doesn't want to lead Ariel on because he really wants to find the woman who saved him. So he's conflicted in that. And and true to form, like he just as he saved Max, right? He uses his ship 
to plunge a dagger into the heart of Ursula, which of course then endears him to Triton, because once Ursula's gone, the Soul Garden's resurrected and Triton's back, right? So not only does he save Ariel, he saves all the merfolk. Yeah. So he has this sort of um, a savior, but he's like the understated savior of this movie. He he is, and and what I would I I guess my one complaint about Eric is that Eric needs to have his own antagonist, and he needs to not steal Ariel's. Um, yeah, and I and I and that really is the problem. Ursula is not a foil to Eric. Eric is not the one who. Okay, so. So my my fan rewrite of this. Uh-huh. Um so it's all about the Dinglehopper. Okay? Okay. This is this is what I'm saying. So first of all, Ariel should know what a fork is. She shouldn't think it's a Dinglehopper. Her father carries a trident. It is a giant, it is a giant <laughs> Dinglehopper. She what is a trident for? It's for spearing things. Ah, I love it. Ariel should get that trident, which is about Taking away a, mm. uh, the power of the patriarchy, let's let's. She should throw it at Ursula. She should defeat Ursula. Yeah, I I I. We should see her when she gets the fork and she's at the dinner table. Instead of her trying to do her hair with it, she should like throw it at her food and then like pick up the thing she speared and then eat it. Because like we could yeah. set that up throughout, I think it would be better. But but the way that we have it is it's that Eric's abilities are what ultimately defeat Ursula. And he if he is the problem with Eric is another protagonist problem, not even the one I was uh, thinking of. He is set up to be a protagonist. He is set set up to defeat a villain. He's just not defeating his villain. It's like watching right. Superman take out the Joker. I didn't I don't need to see that. Well, in a way, though, Ursula is his villain because he's the one, she's the one who has deceived him and mesmerized him into thinking, into keeping him from Ariel, which is who she's, he really she is a, wanted she is all a bad guy. She yeah. is not his foil. She is not his darkness. She doesn't comment on him in any way. And I, I'm going to say she Ursula has him. something to say. Like the conversation between who Ariel is and who Ursula is, and what the two of them do in pursuit of what they want, they are mirrors of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we shift to Ursula? Yeah, let's do it. I love Pat Carol. Fantastic. Uh, but the point that I want to make here is who is Ursula? Ursula is the one woman in Undersea who does not live by Triton's rules. Right. Everyone else is his servant. She has she has maintained her independence at all costs using dark magic and I'll throw out there has a desire to overthrow him. It mirrors in a dark way what Ariel is experiencing with Triton. Oh, 100%. That she wants to topple yeah. her father's rules. And so None of like none of that has any connection to Eric, but, no, but Ursula true. and Ariel are the same person. Ursula is the twisted, dark version of Ariel. Right. I mean, she and, she, she says things like and, a, a woman doesn't know how powerful her voice is until she's been silenced, 
And I'm right. like, oh, that's interesting. How have you been silenced? And then there's another moment where she says, when I used to live at the palace. And I'm like, oh, you lived at the palace. What were you, were you merfolk? Oh, that just opened up a whole lot of questions for me. Were you like merfolk? Or were you, are you related to Triton? Like, what were you doing in the palace? And why, why are you gone? I mean, of course, and then, the, like you said, this is so dark because the creepiest part of this movie is the soul garden, right? And I just thought of this. She collects souls in the way that Ariel collects, like, little baubles yes. and trinkets and kits, That's right? great, Andy. I didn't even see that, but you're right. She's got her own collection. She's mm-hmm. got that own desire to, like, yes, 100%. So, so it needs to be Ariel defeating her. It just needs to be. It feels Ursula like it. But if she about- defeats her, then she defeats that part of herself, maybe. Yes. And maybe that's it. I don't know. But that's um, what it should be. Yeah. I mean, these are two poor, unfortunate souls, right? Which is, I mean, also a very great song um, to give yes. us a lot of ideas about who Ursula is and what she's, what her beliefs are. Her, She's so... Um, Neg- I mean, negative is a <laughs> is kind of a bland word for it. But she has this very cynical view of undersea life. And she is willing to, I mean, her, 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 her thing is to get somebody to do something to give them her magic at the cost of their soul so she can collect it for her garden. That is creepy. I mean, that is, I mean, she's, she's a satanic kind of figure, right? But Ursula is about using her power to dominate others. She right. doesn't want a partner in her relationships. She she wants to be powerful, independent, alone. Mm-hmm. And that is something that Ariel might become if, if she's rejected by Eric. Uh, have, having rejected her father, I think I think the stakes. I think the stakes are there. I could see a darker version of this story in which Ariel goes to Ursula to become her apprentice mm, to learn to learn from her uh you you would uh I don't remember if you commented it during the podcast but but uh, Ursula pl- takes on the absence in Ariel's life the absent mother figure here yeah yeah she she plays she plays up the idea of you know you've experienced what paternal love is like Paternal love is controlling. Let me show you what maternal love is. Maternal love is I'm going to give you everything you want, but I'm yep. going to tell you the consequences, right? right? Which it's a very dark take on maternal love, but Ariel doesn't <laughs> know differently. She has no experience with that at all, which is why I'm going to jump really quickly to um, the importance of a very like minor figure in Carlotta. Um, who to, is the to ma- whom when we were doing pre-work here, Andy <laughs> said, let's talk about Carlotta. And I was like, great, who's Carlotta? No, take it away, Andy. <laughs> no, I, I included her in this character list because she is the only woman we ever see actually nurturing Ariel. Um, that She gives her a bath. She dresses her up. She's going to take care of her. She seats her at the table. She And, and, and Ariel really seems to kind of take to this kind of nurture because it's different than anything she's ever had before. She it's not prescriptive. It's like let's celebrate you. Let's let's decorate you. Let's treat you with the respect. Let's make a beautiful bed for you. Let's treat you with the kind of respect that you deserve. And so that's really kind of a 
uh, an opposite to what Ursula is doing here and pretending to be about Ariel's best interest when truly she is not. Yeah. I And I, I, I think that's the hand that she plays. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's talk about King Triton for a little bit. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, Andy. <laughs> so, so look, you know, I'm a dad and I, I see my dadness uh, in in comparison to the characters in movies. I like I'm like I connect to the dad in a number of different ways. And, you know, the, the way in which the line that I always struggle with is when to be permissive and when to pull back. Always. And, and I read the opening of this movie as Triton is right to keep his daughter from from Sea Rex because there are sharks there and it doesn't matter that this time she got out safely uh next time she might not right and so I feel that tension very much at the same time maybe more than Ursula he's the, he's her antagonist her fight is really more with him mm-hmm. than it is with anybody else is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I think it is fair because she doesn't really want to go to Ursula until she has a big blow up with Triton. And it's not until that he severs that relationship in a lot of ways. He doesn't um, treat her in a loving or try to try to understand her. He doesn't show much compassion for her. So, yeah, he doesn't really get her. He doesn't get her at all. And doesn't really care to. He just wants her to be a rule follower. And it, um, she's not, uh, she she can't do that because it, her wants are just too strong. Andy, you just triggered a firestorm in my brain. Oh, like, good. like <laughs> Triton has a collection too. He's been collecting his daughters. And he That's brings right. them out to play with them and to show yep. them off to other people. But mm-hmm. he doesn't want anything to happen to his collection. And he's afraid of of losing. Like, like he's been collecting them. He's been hoarding them in the same way that... When, oh my gosh, because you know what this means, Ariel? Uh, no, Andy, sorry. <laughs> I get you guys confused. It's okay. Of it's, course you do. <laughs> it's your bright red hair. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Um, but 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 what it means is when Ariel is collecting things in her private garden, she's actually more like him in that moment than not like him. Yeah. And and, and she's she's learned how to be a collector from him, right? That's what yes! he does. He oh my gosh, people. this is blowing my mind. Yeah, yeah. Um and so the so then there's a there's you know the reason why I think Ursula collects souls is really just to piss off Triton because the once she has the soul a, yeah once she has a, the soul then he can't get it back. The three of them are in such parallel to each other, mm-hmm. and they they create this triangle. And I and that that's why it's not Eric's job to 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 resolve this triangle. It it's and not again, his this job. This is such great writing because it's not apparent on the surface that this is what's happening. It's not like, oh, just like you, I collect these things or just, but they're, the parallels are there and they're subtle and they're subtextual. And yet um, it's part of their character and what makes them who they are. Um, And gosh, so like, yeah, it's so great. 
I, I have two points to make about Triton. Um, and, and then I, I just need to make them quickly. Number one, while they don't talk about it very much, the fact that Triton uh, is a single dad raising his seven daughters informs this conversation. And I think it makes him second guess what his role in the relationship is supposed to be. Mm, mm. And unfortunately for Triton, this feeds into my second point, it leads to his big mistake. And I don't think his big mistake is using the trident to destroy her collection. Uh, that is the that is the ultimate outcome of his big mistake, but I think his mistake comes a little bit earlier. And his mistake is giving away the maternal role to Sebastian. What he oh. what, right? Because cuz as a single father, he needs to step up and be both father and mother to his mm-hmm. daughter. That's that is what this moment in time calls for. And Triton is uncomfortable in trying to have a real conversation with Ariel. He's much he's much more comfortable in his patriarchal role. So he says to Sebastian, you're her mom now. He, he doesn't say it in this term. Right. Follow her around, take care of her every day, keep an eye on her. And he abdicates Ariel's emotional well-being and day-to-day support to Sebastian. Well, let's talk about Sebastian, because I think it's interesting how King Triton's arc should be from, go, uh, and it is, we see go, him going from wanting to have total control over Ariel to wanting her to have freedom and the best things for her, right? That's Triton's arc. But it's also Sebastian's arc. And Sebastian has to is a creature that Triton transfers his arc to so that Sebastian can go on land. <laughs> Because Triton's not going to be able to do that. And so and, I think it's just really clever. I think it's clever to think like that. And and I mean, Sebastian talks a good game. I don't think he really wants to nail Ariel down. Um, well, but this is the thing. This is the thing, Andy. So, so Triton makes Sebastian Ariel's mother against mm-hmm. Sebastian's will. Right. But in fact, being a mother means sometimes supporting your child when your father when the father is wrong that's right and sebastian steps up into the maternal role oh, and there's a moment okay. there's a moment where he's like we can undo this contract with the sea witch let me go tell your father your father will fight will fight ursula will will make it undo and he looks and he's like and then you'll be miserable for the rest of your life that's right and he yeah. realizes that in his role as ariel's mom his job is to support her emotional well-being and to not and it's not to take care of um Ariel's father it's to take care of Ariel right so i mean i, 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 I didn't and, and, come in here with this andy this is this no, is what I know. comes we're out of the conversation kind of, we're both figuring things out as we go i mean in in the under the sea song you know sebastian makes the argument i think you mentioned this pre-production that you know, there's there's nothing above the ground that you would ever want to take a look at, right? Yeah. And um, that are below the uh, below, above the surface that you would ever want to look at. And and uh, you know, Ariel doesn't buy it. We all buy it. It's a great. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in what's going on down there. But then he shifts when he and to kiss the girl, he shifts because now he's wanting to be a co-conspirator and help this. You know, help. Ariel, get out of this pickle. 
because she doesn't have a mom to teach her how to flirt. That's so right. he does he does the mother daughter yeah, conversation with her, her which is <laughs> which is you got to make the moment romantic and he starts right. setting the tone and setting the mood and giving her the instruction she needs. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no, he's he's a good he's a terrible surrogate <laughs> guardian. He's a wonderful <laughs> mother. That's right. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about Flounder. You know um, what? Can we just talk about Sebastian's uh, other song, Under the Sea? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I have one complaint about Under the Sea. Okay. Is Sebastian achieves does not achieve his objective with Ariel, which is to get her to want to stay in the ocean. But he achieves it with me in his audience. <laughs> and I think... I think he does such a great job selling that number that no one in the audience wants to go on land. He he did it. He did it. We're all there going like let let's let's stay under the water. Sorry, little little side digression. But, no, but it's that totally number fine. is great. It's totally fine. Um, flounder. Uh, let's <sighs> talk about flounder. Um, he gives me. Um, we were watching it last night again, and I told my husband he gives me Beaver Cleaver vibes. You know, like I can from Leave to Beaver. Like he's like he wants to protect his friend, but he's also afraid of sharks. And, you know, he his role here as a character is he allows us to get inside Ariel's head and allows us to see her fearlessness in a contrast with his fearfulness. Right. I, I, so, I think that's right. Which is always a nice thing. I mean, when you have a, a side character, you you really want those characters, I think, exist in order for us to find out what's going on with the protagonist and for the, he, and to make those those choices uh, sharper and clearer. He doesn't have much to do that helps with the plot. He does exist as a confidant sort of character. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my one question about Flounder is really, you know, if Ariel makes a different contract with, with Ursula... She and Flounder can be together. He is he is the other half of what she is. To, right. to you know, like like it feels to me that that Flounder, you know, I'm not I'm not suggesting Flounder is a viable mate for Ariel. I I do not really believe this, but his his positioning here is he's more than a pet. I think you'd agree with me than that. Right. But less than an equal to Ariel in their yeah. friendship. I don't see them as partners. He feels more like a, maybe the best I could say is like a little brother uh, hanging out with his older sister. Yeah, than a little I do, protege, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then I do see them as as equal buddy buddies. She makes the rules. She makes the games. And if he doesn't want to play, then he doesn't get to hang out with Ariel. He's clearly right. doing things outside his comfort zone throughout this movie. And I wonder, I wonder if there's a way in which the way Ariel con- sort of controls Flounder mirrors the way in which Triton tr- sort of Ooh, controls Ariel. That's pretty brilliant. Yeah. And for that, it's, to a tra- be, it's a great, it's a great opportunity for transference, isn't it? And and for a moment for that, that would really just like look. I love this movie, but like, I would, I would love a moment in which Flounder defies Ariel. And Ariel recognizes that there's more of her father in her 
than she thought there was. It's just, it's just a little moment, and maybe that was there and it got cut because I don't know where the room for that moment is in this movie. Right. But but if that moment was there, I would more firmly know what what Flounder's doing here. Fair enough. Let's talk about the sisters. I just just and it's just a note. It's a one note. You would think there would be more jealousy between the sisters and Ariel because Ariel is clearly Triton's favorite. He never talks about the others by name. And so there's the kind of this, um, you know, uh, Joseph thing going on, this Jacob and Joseph thing going on. And I I kind of expected, I remember the first time I watched this, I was in high school and I kind of expected that moment where the sisters would sort of turn on Ariel. They don't really do that. And they don't really do much. Well, they have a role in the story that doesn't happen in the movie. Oh. And that, I think, is the problem with the sisters. Um, are you familiar with, with Hans Christian Andersen's? It has been a very long time, and unfortunately, I did not review okay. that no, I did. this podcast. I did. Oh, Story good. time oh, with good. Larry. Okay. Oh, <laughs> so in the, in the movie, the sea witch is completely above board in her deal with Ariel. Ariel wants legs. Sea Witch says, I need to take your voice. Uh, you need to kiss him before, get, get that true love's kiss within three days, or you will turn to stone. Sea Witch doesn't care if that happens or not. That's just the way the magic works. Uh, so the Little Mermaid uh, goes up to land. Um, it looks like things are working, but uh, in fact, the prince marries another princess. Like, he plays with her, um, but... But he marries another princess, and she's going to turn to stone. Mm. And her sisters come to the rescue. And all six of them have traded their voices to the sea witch to give Ariel a dagger. And if Ariel kills the prince, she can return to the sea with her (laughs) sisters and not be turned to stone. But this Uh, is is important because... It, it's, it also establishes a commonality between them. They're also willing to give up for love, just yeah. like she is. But their love is the love of their sibling. Um, and they all make it. They all have to make it collectively. If one of them doesn't, if one of them doesn't, the spell won't work. But they all love her that much. Uh, and the real tragedy here is Ariel goes to kill the prince. She finds the prince and the princess sleeping um uh, post-wedding uh, in a, you know, and she knows that this is what she does, needs to do and she looks at him and she just loves him too much and she throws the dagger into the ocean she goes to the cliffs, she turns to stone and she is forever a stone mermaid at the end of this oh wow uh, um, but she's also, the sisters exist in this story to set the stakes up that if something happens to Ariel there are people who still love her and I feel like it's a missed opportunity in this movie to not do more with the sisters here. Again, I don't know that the movie has the space for it. No. Uh, maybe a series would have more of a space for it. We could develop all six of them, give them different personalities or what right, have right. you. Um, but there is there is a theme of sisterhood that I don't think I, I don't think this movie chooses to elevate. And and ultimately they don't need to be here. Right, right. All right, let's talk about Scuttle, who is my one of my favorite um, Disney voices, Buddy Hackett. Um, so I had this great discovery this week. Um, if when I was a little, very small kid, um, 
I used to love, uh, I mean, I was like a preschooler. I used to watch this game show with my grandmother called The Liars Club. Mm-hmm. And Alan Ludden is the host and Betty White and this guy named Larry Hovis was a comedian. They were sort of fixtures on this show. And Buddy Hackett was a frequent guest, right? And the job of the show is to take an object and lie about it uh, and lie about what it is so as to deceive the contestants. And I'm watching last night and it hits me. That's exactly what Scuttle's doing with Ariel. And I'm like, why have I, why does this always feel familiar? And it's like, oh, because I watched Buddy Hackett do this on the Liars Club in the 1970s. Um, So, but uh, Scuttle's a great character and he, you know, he, uh, he not only lies and misleads, but he also uh, redeems himself and, and dive bombs the wedding and um, does some, does some good work. Well, and I'm going to throw out to you, I I know that you are prepared to hear that I hate Scuttle. I know you're prepared <laughs> for this and you're braced for this because Scuttle is clearly related to the vile character from Winnie the Pooh, Owl, who likes to hear birds. himself you talk. You have it in for birds. <laughs> I don't have it in for birds because I'm going to tell you why Scuttle is better than than that awful Owl. Owl is terrible. <laughs> And it is it is the thing that you mentioned. So yes, Scuttle lies in order to make himself feel more important. Maybe in order, maybe it's the only way he feels he can have a friendship with Ariel is if she needs something from him. But mm. unlike Owl, Scuttle reckons with what he is. And there's a moment at the end of towards the in the climax where Scuttle says, Have I ever lied to you before? And they look at him because, of course, he's lied to them all the time. And he says, but when it's important, when it's important, which is to say that Scuttle has a dark midnight of the soul in that moment where he Mm -hmm. recognizes perhaps that he's done harm, that he's the boy who's cried wolf and that he doesn't need to be deserved and is willing to own up to his past fraud in order to save Ariel, because that's what his while his. While his knowledge was fraudulent, the, the the friendship was real. As opposed to Owl, who knows darn well that's Piglet's house <laughs> and will live there and pretend like he doesn't know. Scuttle that's is right. redeemed. Scuttle well, is redeemed and Owl is forever damned. And listener, you can totally look listen to our Winnie the Pooh episode to get a... Uh, a, a larger picture of Larry's um, concerns about Owl. I am uh, right on this. It I is am not right on be, this. It this is, is not the, to be missed. <laughs> this is the hill on which I will die, is Owl is a monster. Uh, I love it. All right, Sir Grimsby, um, Eric's caretaker, who's voiced by Ben Wright, who is Roger in uh, 101 Dalmatians, by the way. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. I Yep. So... I think, you know, it is a, he does a very good job does a very good job in a role that does not demand much of him. He's not mm-hmm. he's not in the movie a lot. But what he does is he actually holds up a mirror to Triton. Cuz while Grimsby is not actually Eric's father. He has the real father-child conversations with Eric. He's yeah. very gentle in his delivery of truths that Eric might not like. My favorite line from Grimsby is, Eric, you're spending all this time looking for a fantasy girl. I dare say the real live flesh and blood woman 
who is in front of you is better than any dream girl. Yep. And he's pragmatic, right? Yeah. It is in such contrast to the way in which Triton and Ariel have their relationship, which is Triton, because I said so. Do what I said, because I said so. Well, what's interesting about him, too, is, is that his character gives us hope that Eric's going to get with Ariel, despite her lack of voice, right? And it's not the girl. But then Grimsby's also the one who takes that hope away when Vanessa enters the scene. But I think he does it for the right reason. Yeah, absolutely. Because the other thing that Grims, Grimsby does in that moment is he tells Eric, I was wrong. I guess yep. that fantasy girl did exist, and you did know better than I did. It's ultimately not Grimsby's choice who right. Eric marries. He's there to advise his surrogate child. He's not there to make the decisions for him. Are you listening, Triton? Because we're coming up to a point <laughs> here about this. Um it it is it is such a different model of paternal power. Mm-hmm. It is it is my power is to give you the best guidance I can give you and hope you make the best decisions. Right? Right. There is no control, and in fact, Grimsby gets on board that ship at the beginning of the movie. Even though it, he gets seasick on that ship, he goes there because that's where his charge is. That's right. that's you know you know and and Triton. Maybe if Triton went to the surface with Ariel, their whole relation, their whole relationship would be different. He would have some control over how she experienced it. He could keep her safe and satisfy her need to learn. But we all have to learn lessons or there's no movie, right? That's true. <laughs> okay. That's true. So Chef Louis, who I think is hysterical because he is faux French, um, with his Nouvelle Cuisine, Les Champs-Élysées, Marie Chevalier, right? Yes. Um it is, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it sounds very French. If you don't know French, you just know that he's just saying kind of American things that Americans would understand and someone's name and a street. <laughs> My kid's favorite moment in this movie is his song. Oh, 100%. Le poisson, le poisson. <laughs> uh, so great. <laughs> that is their favorite mo- moment. It's when Se- he's, he's Sebastian's enemy right yeah he's sebastian's antagonist right and he keeps sebastian from keeping adequate tabs on ariel so he is sebastian's ticking clock but he is also the person who finds the joy in his work you know like sebastian finds the joy in his music uh chef louis uh finds the joy in his cooking um great he's a very soft antagonist it is it is much needed comic relief Yes. Uh, in this movie, and it, it is a great opportunity for Sebastian to temporarily take up the the mantle as the audience surrogate. We're with him for this whole thing. It's a monster. It's like it's almost like the horror movie part of this story. <laughs> right. But right, right. it's such a fun sequence. You could cut the entire thing, and it wouldn't change the movie at all. And yet, but it, and yet, it's somehow the favorite. It's, it's Disney magic. It's Disney magic. Okay. It is. Let's talk about something we've been hinting about this entire broadcast, which is protagonist problems. Mm. Okay. Gird so, your loins, listener. All righty. Here we go. I feel like we discovered and then talked about the Ariel Eric protagonist problem. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've covered it. There is a bigger protagonist problem than that for me, which is that 
this movie, while it might be Ariel's story, is about Triton's choices. It's about Triton learning to let his daughter go and to make her own decisions. The final scene that you pointed out as the emotional climax is not Ariel choosing whether to go back to the sea or to go on land. It is Triton grappling with, do I let her go or do I keep her there? The whole story is building towards Triton learning something about himself. Ariel doesn't. Ariel doesn't learn anything about herself in this movie. She doesn't grapple with her flaw. She doesn't have the space for it. They don't uh. even have a scene in which the two of them really talk... I'm, because it's falling action and we don't have the time. But 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 we don't have the where they really have the opportunity to talk through their problems as father and daughter. He makes this decision without consulting her and lets her go. And and it, it if anything, if anything, we want her to be making the final choices. Right? right? Right, because you want the protagonist to be the one that takes care of the conflict. And I think we pointed to that earlier, because ultimately you start going, well, wait a minute, is this movie about Eric? If he's battling the the sea witch, is it about Triton? No, I mean, the movie should be about, I think and it wants to be, about a young woman who is acting to live her own life and secure, secure her own future. And, you know, she upsets the apple cart by doing that. But then it starts at then that third act, it starts to get kind of shifty because they you don't know see what to up do until with her. That, yeah. Up until that point, Triton. Well, what to do with her is to give her agency. Right. Um, well, right. That's why the Dinglehopper thing for me is the solution to this. Yeah. 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 Have her wield her father's power mm-hmm. and come into her own. What we want to mm-hmm. see is a girl become a woman. Right. We, we want to see her take those steps into adulthood. That means she needs to grapple with her flaw, overcome it, and come out a stronger person. Mm-hmm. Ariel goes through this stuff in the movie, but I have no indication that she has grown in maturity or wisdom for what she's gone through. Right. She's, I mean, she's aware yeah. she's made mistakes. Do I know she's not going to make them again? I don't. No, she's not the one because again, she's not the one who solves the problems, right? The she patriarchy solve the solves problems. the problem for her, and so if she were to really refine her vessel, right, and turn herself into something, you know, really be sharpened by all of this, I think we would see her have again have more agency at the end of the movie for sure. Yeah, that's literally my only criticism of this movie, and again. Like culturally in 1989, right? For I don't think time. anybody. I don't think anybody notices that. I think in 2022, we're all going. Why doesn't she? Why does she take a step back? And why is marriage the thing? Right? Yes, you know, and, and it and that basically is what it comes down to. Is if it came out today, we'd have an issue with it. But for right. its time, it was the movie that we needed. That's and right. I, and I, I think that's I think that's fine. I'm I'm comfortable with all of that. So. Theme. Larry, you had something that you wanted to talk about when it came All right, to so the this is not a theme film. that I think this movie intends. And yet, when I was watching it, I couldn't help but see it. Uh, and so, I, bear with me on this, listener. And I do not, I do not mean to in, to offend 
on on this one. I am seeing Ariel's journey as a metaphor for a transgender experience. I think what we see at the beginning of this movie, it's not that she wants to be with Eric. It's that Ariel is a human trapped in a mermaid's body. The things that she wants, she wants to have a body that is different than her own. She wants to have legs and she wants to dance and she wants to and she wants to experience this whole other world, but no one will accept her humanness. They're forcing her to be a mermaid. Mm. And I think there is something in this metaphor. Look, there we we still don't have uh, great transgender representation in Disney movies. We're we're heading there. Um, we're, we'll talk about it a little bit when we get to Mulan and and ultimately ultimately how how well it does. I I'm not the person to necessarily say here, but I think Ariel does capture this. What what's problematic for us with Ariel is when we look at her journey as she gives up her mermaidness to for a boy, and I don't think we like that. But I think if we look at this as a story of someone truly becoming who they were always meant to be, mm. I think this movie is a much better movie uh, viewed through that, that is, lens. I that will is also a really say, good lens. Uh, and I don't, I don't have this all figured out, and I'm not the person to figure all of this out. But I, I do want to ask the question. I think Ursula sets up a counter metaphor, which is the, which is an idea of what, what people are afraid of in terms of a transgendered person. Mm. Ursula disguises herself as Vanessa. She is not really Vanessa. And on her wedding day with, with Eric, they have sort of a crying game moment where, surprise, look who you really married it wasn't. And like that, that I think is Ursula represents like a dark fear. But I think Ariel, Ariel is not that. And and Ursula is the person who is pretending to be transgender. Interesting. Um, I, like it's a, it's a nightmare. It's a straw man. It isn't. It isn't really the experience of it. Um, I I think Ariel. I think Ariel is the metaphor for it. And I think in this movie we destroy the nightmare to see what it really is. And it's about a person becoming who they were meant to be. It's not about someone pretending to be something that they're not. That is really uh, I would brilliant. love it. Yeah, I would love it if somebody if if we have any transgender uh, audience members who who think I've gotten this wrong, uh, I'm open to being corrected on it. Uh, but but that was my reading this time this time around, and uh, you know, uh, I can learn to be better if if I've if I've misspoken here uh, awesome. or spoken out of turn. All right, I think that's a. I think it's an interesting analogy and I, I want to think about that some more for sure. Yeah. I, haven't, right. I haven't gotten there yet, but, but yeah, I think th- yeah. there's something there. There's yeah. something there. Living as, with the body that you, you feel you've always wanted. That seems, yeah. that does seem to be a theme. All right. Pitch time. So given this film, the little mermaid Two: return to the sea, the little mermaid Ariel's beginning, uh, which is sort of the prequel. We've got the animated series, the live app at a, there's a live action adaptation in the works. I don't know if you knew that. I did. Uh, and, yes. And uh, the stage musical, right? Um, and a Jim Henson puppet version of this that it appears that for a little bit. That was the surprise. I didn't know if you knew that, but of course I you knew that. I did know. Of course there I knew a, that. 
There was a project called Little Mermaid's Island that Jim Henson proposed. It was supposed to be a daily show on the Disney Channel. There was a human actress that played Ariel. The idea was scrapped, but again, a lot of the set dressing wound up in Voyage of the Little Mermaid live action stage show as at what is now Disney's Hollywood Studios. So you can see some of that puppetry and some of that uh, in that stage show. Um, oh, and I want to I want to throw a shout out to Tokyo Disney Sea, where you can yes. go to Atlantica and has an amazing trapeze show where Ariel is swimming above your heads. Uh, but she's really on a trapeze. You know, she's it's all it's all flying above you as she sings. It's also amazing. Oh, my goodness. That sounds incredible. <laughs> I, I need to go to Tokyo Sea. You do. All right. All right. Pitch. What do you think? What's your pitch? Okay. Uh, I'm going to throw out here, uh, I, there's so much to do with this world. Um, and I, I kind of I kind of think I talked myself into something other than I originally had planned. I originally had planned, um, you know, now that mermaids exist uh, and or, or that the surface world knows that mermaids exist and we have this marriage, could we see some more cultural crossover between the two of them? But I think what I actually want to see, I, I've talked myself into this. I think I want to see one of Ariel's sisters learn from Ursula. I want Ooh. I want a slightly darker version. I don't I don't care which one they're interchangeable as they are. Uh, but I think I want one of them to try to find an escape from Triton Triton in a different way. Uh, I, I would actually like to see it focus more on the relationship between Ursula and this other sister uh, of Ariel's and and see if maybe. Ursula has a softer side to her, um, you know, like, and actually can feel a little bit of maternal love uh, towards something that's not one of one of her like pets. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there's something there. Uh, I think that's what I'd like. A darker version, the Little Mermaid sister. <laughs> well, I'm really curious about Ursula's line about once living in the palace. Now I've mm-hmm. not seen the other Disney. Okay, I used to turn on the others. The, the to this full disclosure, I used to turn on uh, the Little Mermaid beginning and the Little Mermaid two for my daughters when they were very small in order to buy me a shower. Um, and I've not seen the TV show, um, which is you know that's on me. But I'm super curious as to how they address her. She's like Maleficent in that she dies here and we never have to worry about her again. But Ursula, with her soul garden and her dastardly deeds, surely has some sort of origin story. And I think she's Triton's sister gone bad. That is the answer in the Broadway musical. Okay, okay. And I think her choice to go bad makes Ariel's rebellion all the more dangerous to Triton, right? Um, Because if that's the case, then... You know, he is Ariel going down the path that's going to make her Ursula, right? So I want a movie that answers the question, what made Ursula go bad in the first place? Why was she exiled from the Mer Kingdom? Why was she silenced by Triton? Where does her power come from? I have a whole lot of questions. We I'm could do sure our I movies like together. With it that. could be oh yeah, 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 yeah. Could be the same yeah. movie. Yeah. I just All right, have Disney, a lot of- ball is in your court. We have our pitch. <laughs> Yeah, you can hire us. We are we can be bought. Okay. <laughs> and and we're hard workers. Okay. We are. So what movie are we tackling next week, Larry? This time for real, 
Andy, because we've we've announced it before, <laughs> but this time we are really doing the absent-minded professor. Oh, I'm yes, so sure that it's happening be- because we <laughs> recorded it last week. But but for you, it'll listener, it'll be next week, the absent-minded professor for yes. real. Oh, I'm so excited. That was a it's it's a it's a good one, guys. It really is. Okay. If you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor? Will you share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? And please, 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 you can check out our Once Upon a Disney uh, Facebook page. You can interface with us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6 on Twitter. Or you can drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon. <laughs>